All right. Well, welcome. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Good to have you guys here. Um, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. We are so grateful for you. Uh, if there's any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected here at River City, then we would love to do that. So, uh, River City here, we are on the front end of a series this fall, taking a look at the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And what we've seen so far in Genesis is that Genesis is so foundationally important to our faith, not because it tells us about the how of creation, because it tells us about the who and the why of creation. It tells us about who God is, it tells us about what he is like, and because we see those things, we find out who we are and who we're supposed to be. It's because understanding who God is and why he created us in this world, it changes everything about who we are and how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And for the past two weeks, what we've uh, been doing is we've been zooming in in the creation story on day six in the creation of humanity, which is found at the end of Genesis chapter one and in more detail in, uh, in chapter two. And what we saw in Genesis one, verses 26 through 28, is that unlike any other part of creation, humanity is made in the image of God. And what that means is that we possess both the capacity to know God and to reflect God's nature and his character, and that we are commissioned by God to embody those things in the way that we relate to the rest of creation on his behalf as his representatives. In Genesis 1, what we saw the very first week, two weeks ago, when we started taking a look at this, is that Genesis 1, the language of the text, is, is, is written in such a way to magnify and to highlight the uniqueness of humanity being made in the image of God. We saw about the, the way that the language is written. It's like the LED stop sign that's flashing. That's like, you, you cannot miss how important this is. You, you really need to stop and pay attention to this. And so we saw that it was the imago Dei, the, the image of God in humanity is so important because it answers the questions about our identity and our purpose. Because being made in the image of God, it tells us who we really are. You see, the identity of every human is that of an image bearer of God. Because we're made in the image of God, every person, everywhere, in every time, in every circumstance has value and dignity and worth no matter what because it comes from their identity being made in the image of God. And this is an incredibly life-giving identity that can never be taken away. You see, because it's not based on ability or disability. It's not based on performance or lack of performance. It's not based on development or lack of development. It's fundamental to what it means to be human, is to be an image bearer of God. And it produces this incredible diversity and an incredible unity amongst humanity when it's understood rightly. What's more is that our identity as God's image bearers gives us our purpose as well. Because we're made in the image of God, our purpose as humanity then is to reflect God's image and character, reflect his nature and character to the world that is around us. John Kelvin wrote it this way. He said, we are like mirrors that reflect something of God into the earth. And so everything we do has meaning and purpose because in everything we can live out our identity and our calling as God's valued and commissioned image-bearing representatives. It means that not only the good parts of life have meaning, not only the good parts of life are worth living, it means that even the mundane parts of life are worth living and have incredible meaning. It means even the painful parts of life are worth living and have meaning and worth and value. 
But this identity and our purpose as God's image bearers, it doesn't just change the way we relate to ourselves and the way that we relate to God. It, it really changes the way that we relate to the rest of creation. It changes the way that we relate to the world that God has made. And we saw how the image of God, it affects our relationships, affects our relationship with nature. We said we don't worship creation and we don't abuse it. We care for it because what we are as God's image bearers is stewards of the creation he has made. We saw how the Imago Dei affects our relationship with other people, with other image bearers. We honor and respect and dignify all those who bear God's image, not because you agree with them on everything, not because you affirm every decision that everyone makes, because everyone is made in God's image, and God is always worthy of value and dignity and honor, and so people are always worthy of that. Furthermore, we saw last week how that affects specifically in humanity the relationship between men and women and how we understand gender and sexuality and marriage. What I hope you have been seeing is that our identity and our purpose as God's image-bearing representatives is good news that fundamentally transforms who we are. It fundamentally changes who we are. It informs and transforms our identity. But we're not done yet because there's still a few more things that we're going to get to about the implications of the image of God this week and next week, two, two more weeks. That's four weeks we are spending on talking about the image of God in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the stop sign with the LEDs around it. We, we got to stop and listen and pay attention to what's going on here. You see, this morning, in fact, we're going to continue in talking about what the image of God looks like and what that means, how it's implications in our lives. For, for one of the single biggest parts of our lives, something we're going to all spend pretty much over a third of our lives doing, and that's work. You see, and what should come as no surprise to us this morning is that God's word what God's word has to say about work is in sharp contrast to what we see being lived out in the world around us. You see, people tend to view work in one of two ways. Uh, work, some people see work as a curse that they just have to endure. It is a necessary evil. You need money to live, so you just got to work, right? Monday is the worst day of the week. Friday is the best day of the week. TGIF is their motto. Everybody's working for the weekend is their theme song, right? Like, it is, work is a curse. You just have to endure it. You're just trying to make it through to the end. They're counting down the days to their next vacation or until the ultimate vacation of retirement. Some people, they see work as a curse. And while some people see it as a curse, as they, they reject work as the, they see it as the enemy of life and fulfillment. Others, they bow down at the altar of work because work is the God that they've given their lives to worshiping. It doesn't mean that they love their job or that they think it's the greatest thing on earth. They might even hate their job. It just means that their job is the place that they look to to find their meaning and their purpose and their identity and their worth and their sense of fulfillment in life. As Genesis lays out God's good design for this world, what we see is a view of work that is altogether different than those. See, the Bible obviously doesn't teach us that work is a little G God that we should worship. And nor does the Bible teach us that work is a curse that we just have to endure. Instead, what we see in Genesis is that work is not a curse. It is not a God. Work is a good gift from the one true God. As we study this morning, what I want to show you in the text is that the only way we're going to be able to see work that way, the only way we're going to actually be able to work in a way that is life-giving and fulfilling is if our work is an outpouring, if it's an overflow of our, our identity and purpose as God's image bearers. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll read our passage this morning. Jesus, we just come to you this morning, and God, I just, especially in my own heart, I just sense like just a, a need for you this morning. 
God, I just want to confess, like, I, I don't have what I need to preach in a way that is life-giving, in a way that is, is fruitful. God, I don't have that without you. God, so I just ask humbly this morning, God, would you fill me with your spirit? God, I, I, I don't have the words that I need without you. God, we don't have the hearts that we need to hear without you. God, we really need you. And so we are thankful, God, that you choose and that you, that you promise to meet us as we study your word. And so, God, we just ask, would you do that graciously? God, by your spirit, would you fill us so that we might be able to teach, that I might be able to teach, and that we might be able to listen and hear and respond rightly to your word. God, we just, we cannot do that without you, and so we say we need you. God, for our good, for your glory, would you graciously do that? God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we read our passage this morning, it's just important that we understand the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2, because we're going to be in a few chunks of both. And my undergrad degree is in video production, which I use all the time. And so you can, uh, let me, I'll describe it to you this way. That was a joke. That was a joke. Amen. That was too fast. I'm sorry. Okay. So Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, it's kind of like that first shot in a movie, right? It's that, it's that first shot of the movie that sets up where you are. It sets up the context for what's happening in the movie. Maybe it gives you a shot of Washington, D.C. Or maybe it gives you a shot of some office or some building or something that's going on. It's the establishing shot. And so it gives you a lot of context, but not a lot of details. It's giving the overview. Converse, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25, it's the close-up shot. It's the, it's the next shot in the movie. It's not telling a different story. It's not telling a new story. It's just telling the same story, but from a different angle. It's, it's zooming in so you can see the detail of what is going on. It's zooming in to day six of creation so we can see those details. And so for the sake of us not being confused by all the zooming in and zooming out and all the time travel, what we're going to do this morning is, is read, the, read our passage in chronological order rather than in written order. So we're going to start with uh, at the end of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, taking a look at that kind of context view, the zoomed out view of creation, of day six in humanity. Then we're going to do a zoom in on day six as we read the, the first part of Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And then we're going to zoom back out as we read the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2 and we see the completion of creation in day seven. So it's going to be chronological, right? So hopefully that will make sense as we read it and study this morning, so... Let's read. We're in, beginning in Genesis 1. I totally did not add the slides this morning. Just, just trust me. It's there, okay? Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over all the fish in the sea and all the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2, we're going to zoom ahead. Verse 8 here begins. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there, were tree, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, 
From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's win- it winds through the entire land of Havala, where, the- where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it, w- it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 goes on to say this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. As we study this morning, what we've been seeing over and over and over is that our purpose as image bearers is to reflect something about God. It's to reflect his nature and his character in some way, shape, and form. And so as we study this morning, the question that we need to ask about work is, is what does our passage show us about God's nature and his character in relation to work that should inform and transform our work as his image-bearing representatives. Three things I want us to see in the passage this morning. One, because God works, work is good. Two, because God works, we work. And three, because God finished the work, we can rest. Begin here. Because God works, work is good. Throughout Genesis 1, God is creating, he is making, he is building. And Genesis 2-2 tells us that what God is doing is that he was working. His work was creation and making it. And you're thinking, Wow, that's just incredibly insightful. Thank you for, thank you for showing that stat, right? Well, we don't, we don't think anything about the idea of God working. That's just not a big deal to us. We're like, that seems to make sense. Seems like it's just a thing, right? But in pretty much every other culture of the time that this was written into, gods did not work. In fact, the idea of a God who worked was wildly countercultural. You see, in pretty much every culture of the time, work was seen as something to be avoided at all costs. Work was a curse. A few years ago, I studied the Enuma Elish. That's the the Babylonian creation in story. And what you'll find if you study that is that it is really weird, and there's some interesting stuff going on there. But what you will find if you study it is is that man is created, humanity is created so that the gods don't have to work. The point of humanity is so that the gods don't have to work anymore. They can get somebody else to do it for them. Work is seen as menial and as worthless. It's a task to be given to the lowliest of beings. Work is a curse to be avoided. The ancient Greeks, they, they saw work in a lot of similar way. I'm taking a philosophy class in seminary right now, which is hurting my brain, hopefully in good ways. Um, but what you see is that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all those guys, they thought work was the worst. That's why they were philosophers. They didn't want to work, Right? Work was the worst, and, and physical labor was the absolute worst. If you had only, only, the, only the people worst off had to do physical labor. That's how they saw it. When you read the story about Pandora's box from the Greeks, what comes out of Pandora's box? Right? It's, all the, it's all the terrible things in the world. You know what's in that list? Work is in the list. What comes out of Pandora's box is work. You see, so much of the ancient world, they saw work as a curse. It was... It was something that the gods were trying to get out of. It was something that they were trying to get out of. But that's not the view of work that we see in Genesis at all. You see, Genesis reveals a God 
who works. Later in John chapter 5, we see Jesus affirming this when he says, my father is always working, and so am I. Genesis 2 verse 8 says it this way. It says that God, he even does the dirty work of planting gardens. I don't know about you, I hate gardening. My sister-in-law, she tries to get us to plant things all the time, and my question to always her is, what happens if I do nothing? And she's like, well, you probably need to water. I say, no, no, what happens if I do nothing? Well, she's like, it'll die. It's not going to work then. That's why our house is surrounded with hostas, okay? Because you do nothing to hostas, and everything's fine, right? That's, that is the thing. I hate gardening. But God even does the dirty work and the hard work and the monotonous work of gardening. But it's not just, it's not only God that is the only one working. Notice here, before the fall, before sin, before everything is messed up, in, in paradise, is the world as it was intended to be, there is Work. Verse 215 says it this way. God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Notice here, it's not, it's not for God. It's with him because God is working throughout the passage. There was work in the Garden of Eden. There was work in paradise. I don't know about you. When I think of paradise, I don't think about work. I think about the absence of work. But that's not the picture that Genesis is painting for us. You see, In Genesis, the very beginning, God and man are working. And what the Bible is doing is the Bible is lifting up work as something that is good, as something that is life-giving, as something that is is not just something to be avoided. It's not a necessary evil. It It is at the heart of what it means to be human, is to be workers. And so it's not a curse. It's not something that should be avoided at all costs. It's not the enemy of joy. In fact, all work is good. Even hard, even the hard manual work of gardening is good. Work is good because God is good, and God works. And that leads us to our second point this morning. You see, because God works as his image bearers, we also work. You see, because God works, part of our identity as image bearers of God is that of workers. And so we don't work so that God can rest. We don't work just because we need money to live. We work because we bear the image of a God who works. It's part of who we are. That's why... That's why even though what we really just want, what we feel like we really want is just to sleep until noon and watch Netflix all day. Like, that's what we want. It's at the heart of what we, it's like, ah, just, that would feel so good. And then when you do that, you never actually feel better, do you? You just kind of feel like a slob and that you like wasted your whole day and you're like, I don't understand how there's food that's still on part of my face. Like, I don't, what, what happened, Right. It never satisfies, it never really fulfills, it, it, never, it never really gives the life and the rest that you're looking for, because that's not what you are designed to do. Watching Netflix and sleeping in is not like evil or something like that, but it, it's not your design, it's not what we are designed to do. It's not the re- that's not the reflection of the image of the God that you bear. And so when we do that, what we're doing is we're going against the grain of who God made us to be as his image bearers. You see, there was work in paradise, there was work in the Garden of Eden, you need to hear this, because true life and fulfillment is not found in the absence of work. True life and fulfillment is not found in the absence of work, it is found in doing the work that you were made to do. It's found in doing the work that you were made to do. And I just want to be really clear here, the work that you and I are made to do has nothing to do with your occupation. The work that you and I are made to do has nothing to do with your occupation. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine, she posted a quote on Facebook that's by Vincent Van Gogh. He said this, he said, your profession is not what brings home your weekly paycheck. Your profession is what you were put here on earth to do with such a passion and such an intensity that it becomes spiritual in calling. 
That's a lie. That's, that's just a lie. That, that's not what is true. You see, that is a lie that will actually crush you because what that quote is saying is that your job is your purpose in this life. Your occupation is who you are. And so if you don't have a job that is fulfilling you, then you're nothing. And the ultimate purpose in life is to find a job and to find a career that is your spiritual calling. And if you can't find that, well, then you just wander this life just aimlessly, without purpose and without meaning. That is a lie that will crush everyone. Because even the best jobs can never truly give what you want them to give. Even the best jobs, they leave you longing. They leave you unfulfilled sometimes. Even the best jobs mean you have to do stuff you do not want to do. Even the best jobs can get taken away in a moment. See, no, the work that we are called to do as God's image bearers is not about your occupation. It's about reflecting God in all that you do. You see, that's really good news because it means that in any occupation, you can do the work that you are actually called to do. My job as a pastor is not any more important or any more reflective of the image of God than any other job that any of you guys have. You can reflect God as you fill out spreadsheets. You can reflect God as you teach kids. You can reflect God as you build buildings. You can reflect God as you plan events. You can reflect God as you engineer things. You can reflect God as a mom as you change diapers and make lunch and clean up messes. You see, in any job, you can reflect the nature and the character of the God whose image that you bear and whose likeness you are commissioned to reflect to this world. Do you see how freeing that is? I don't know about you. I remember from when you are a kid, you are always asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I remember taking my first job career test in middle school. I remember high school is all about, you got to find, you got to start doing job shadowing so you can see what you want to be and see where you want to go and see what major you're going to pick in college. It's not wrong to like wisely figure out what you want to major in in college. But the ultimate purpose of our life is not to find our identity in our work. If you see, if you see the finding of your, if you see like finding the right job as the ultimate part, as like the linchpin thing to your life, that will always leave you wanting. It will always leave you longing. And even if you find that job, what you will find is that it will let you down just as quickly as you found it. You see, our calling is is. The work that we are called to do, the work that we are made to do, is not about your occupation. It's in your occupation. There's a few kinds of ways that we do that. One, I think, pretty much, uh, one, th- one way that we do that is, is that we, we image God in the kind of work that we do. Genesis 1, it talked over and over about how God is a creator, he is a builder, he is a maker. God is one who is orderly and organized. One, he is concerned about the details of his creation. In some ways, the jobs that we do, they reflect those character things about God. But more importantly, much more importantly, I think the way that we image God in our work is not in the type of work that we do, but is in the way that we do our work and how we relate to others as we do it. As employees, we are not lazy and we are not complacent or dishonest because that is not who God is and we bear his image. Instead, we work hard and we are faithful and we are honest because we bear God's image and that's his character. As bosses, we aren't harsh or overbearing or manipulative because that is not who God is. And instead, we are generous and we're gracious and we are just because that is what the image of God looks like, born in people. And it's him we represent. You see, your job, your occupation, it's not the work that you have been put on earth to do. It is simply an avenue 
for you to do the real work that you have been called to as God's image-bearing representative. Our calling is to reflect God's image and his nature and his character in all of life. And you do that in your occupation, you do that in your work, but you do it everywhere else as well. And when you get that, man, when that clicks for you, that will radically change the way that you work. But the reason that we don't see work as a good gift from God, as an opportunity, as, as an avenue by which we get to live out the, the calling and the purpose that we have that is secure and life-giving and fulfilling, the reason why we don't see it as a good gift, the reason why our work is so often a curse that we just have to try to endure or a God that we either willingly or reluctantly are bowing down and worshiping is because we believe the lie of that Van Gogh quote. We believe that our spiritual calling, we believe that the most important thing is if we find a job that will give us our meaning and our identity and our worth. Instead of finding our identity and being image bearers of God who are fully loved, completely pleasing with him, wholly satisfied with, we look to our work to be the thing that gives us our identity and our value and our worth, and we look to our jobs to be the thing where we find our our purpose and our sense of fulfillment in life. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, that's the work under the work. When we're looking for our identity and our purpose and our calling in our jobs, it's the work under the work. It's the work under the work that both spoils the good gift that work is and it keeps us from ever being able to truly rest. You see this all the time. You see this all the time. Just as we can and I were watching a show, one of the characters is a surgeon. He has some type of brain cancer or something's going on. And there's this scene where he was talking to his friend about how what he's really afraid of, what he's most afraid of, is not the surgery that he needs. And it's not that he might die because of it. What he is really afraid of is losing his ability to be a surgeon. He said, I have been, this is a quote, he said, I have been terrible at a lot of things in my life, but I am a darn, but I am darn smart and I am a darn good surgeon. And if I cannot be those things, then I don't know who I would be. His friend responds this way. He said, well, you'd, you'd still be my friend. And after a long pause, what is wildly obvious is that that is not enough. It's not enough. You see, Dr. Glassman, his work, as much as it is about helping others as a surgeon, his work is really all about him. He needs it to know who he is in this world. His ultimate fear isn't dying. It's the loss of his source of identity. And that is a fear that is paralyzing him more than the disease that is actually killing him. You see, that's the work under his work. Casey Neistat is a YouTuber that I really enjoy following. He is an accomplished filmmaker. He has more than 10 million followers, 10 million subscribers on his channel. Most of his videos have over a million views on them. And he often talks just bluntly about how his work is his identity. His whole life is basically lived under the belief that happiness comes from doing, what makes, doing whatever makes you happy. And so the ultimate source of his happiness is found in his work. He, he says it this way in one of his recent vlogs. He said, on a daily basis, I wrestle with the existential thoughts like, what is the point of what I am doing? Why do I wake up every single day at 5 a.m.? What am I chasing he says, I am appreciative of what I am and how I got here, but I want more. I want to do more. I want, I want, and why? He goes on to say this. He says, I have the curse of ambition. 
The master that is ambition is only fed if you are constantly spoon-feeding it the doing. And when I stop feeding it, I stop feeling satisfied. And so the curse that is ambition always demands more. You see, here I am back in the office doing the one thing that makes me happy, my North Star, which is my work. You know what Casey's biggest fear is? His biggest fear is retirement. He's expressed it multiple times. It's the one thing in the world that he is most afraid of. Why? Because it's the loss of his identity. It's the loss of everything that he thinks makes him who he is. Because the, what he would lose is the one thing that gives him his identity and purpose. He would lose his north star. You see, that master that Casey has kept feeding his ambition, that master that never lets him rest, that, matter, that master that no matter whatever he accomplishes always keeps demanding more and more and more, that master is the work under the work. I had a friend in college who went to college. They, they chose the major that they chose. They chose the school that they chose because they were trying to live up to who they thought their parents wanted them to be. They didn't even like the school. They didn't even like their major. And even though they were good at it, they were plenty smart to do it, they resented it. Why? It wasn't the work that was a problem. It was the work under the work. The work of getting the approval and getting the validation of their family. You see, for all these people, whether they are fictional or real, what is driving everything about their work is not their occupation, it's the work under it. It's the work under the work that is, that is at the end of the day, leaves them bowing their lives at the altar of identity and purpose in the form of their work. And no matter how hard they try, no matter how much they accomplish, it's the work under the work that makes their rest actually impossible. You see, what they all really want, what we all really want is a true rest that gives us an identity and a purpose and a security that overflows into the rest of our lives, into our jobs, into our marriages, into our families, into our occupations. And so the rest that we are longing for is the kind of rest the psalmist talks about in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 writes this, the psalmist says, with thousands of foes and enemies all around him, the psalmist says, I lie down and I slept. He said, I awoke again because the Lord has sustained me. He's talking about a kind of rest that comes from an absolute security, comes from an, a total peace, that comes from an absolute confidence. You see, but you and I, we can never have that kind of security, and we can never have that kind of peace, and we can never have that life-giving kind of rest until we see that because God finished the work, we can rest. See, Genesis 2, 2 verse 2 says this, by the seventh day, God completed his work. And so he rested. The Psalms tell us that God never sleeps. He never gets tired. So why? Why, does, why is God resting? Why? This seems so out of character with him. I'll tell you why. You see, in many creation stories, man is created so that the gods can rest. But in the Bible, what we see is that God works and God finishes his work. And he rests so that in our work, we can rest. So that in our work, instead of looking for our significance and our meaning and our purpose and our identity, we simply get to live out the one that God has already given us in our jobs and in our occupations and in the things of life that God has called us into and invited us into. Tim Keller, he just says it this way. I thought this was so helpful. He says, until you realize that, that, that the significance you really need is to be significant in God's eyes, that the approval that you really need is God's approval, that the security that you really need is to be secure in God's arms, and that in Christ you have all of those things already, you will never be able to rest. 
Philippians 2 says it this way, that Christ counted you as more significant than himself, even going to the point of death on a cross. The Father, speaking of Jesus in, in the early part of the Gospel of John, whose status you have, you have Christ's status, the same thing that he says here, he says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The security of knowing that we did not earn our status with God so that we can never mess it up. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. You see, until you really believe that in Jesus you have the Father's approval, you have his security, you have his love, you have his faithfulness, until you really believe that you will never be able to rest. And furthermore, your work will never actually image God as it was intended to, to be as a blessing to you and as a worship unto him because it will always ultimately be about you see, on the seventh day, God rested from the work of creation because it was finished. In John chapter 19, Jesus says something similar. As he hangs on the cross, having completed the work, he says, he cries out, it is finished. He did that so that we might rest. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10 says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God does from his. Do you see that? What is Hebrews talking about? Hebrews saying the, the cure for the work under the work is, is Jesus. The cure for the work under the work is the gospel. You see, the work of creation and the work of redemption have been finished. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the kind of rest that he is offering? He's not offering a physical rest, although he does offer that. He's, he's, he's offering to take the work under the work. He's offering to take the, the, our, our struggle and our striving for an identity and a value and a purpose and a, and, a, and a worth and a sense of fulfillment. And Jesus, when he says, come unto me, all those who are labor and who are heavy burden, what he is saying is, you are holding the work under your work and you cannot bear it. And he says, what I offer you is freedom from the work under the what I offer you is life. What I offer you is blessing because what I offer you is a new identity that frees you. You see, God finished the work in creation and that changed everything about the work that he gave Adam and Eve to do. And Jesus finishes the work of redemption and that changes everything about the work that you and I are called to do. What matters most is that Jesus finished the work on our behalf. You need to hear this Jesus finished the work that mattered most, so that, not so that we would be free from work, but so that we would be free in our work. Do you see that? So the question is then, how do you know if you have the rest under the work? How do, how do you know if, you're, if, 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 you're, if your job really isn't about your job, if, if the burden of that is really the work under the work? How do you know if, you, if, if, if that's what you are wrestling with? And I'll just say one of the, one of the easiest markers to be able to see if you are if you are stuck in the working of the work is if you can actually physically rest or not see there's some of the some of us you need to hear this this morning laziness it does not bear the image of god it does not honor him it does not represent him but you need to hear this too being able not to rest that's a rejection of the image of god as well because genesis 2 verses 1 through 2 says that god finishes work and he rests and so if we if we're not able to rest that's a sign that we're not bearing God's image rightly as well. See that gnawing feeling that you have whenever you try to rest but you can't? 
that crushing sense of weight that your work often gives you. You can tell yourself whatever you want to tell yourself to try to explain that away, but here's what's going on. It's the work under the work. That's, that's, that's what it is. It's the work under the work. You see, I've been reading Exodus in my quiet times, and providentially, God in his timing, I got to Exodus chapter 31 this week in my preparation. That just happens to be about the Sabbath. God's pretty cool like that. Verse 14, it reads like this of Exodus 31. It says, observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. God's talking to the Israelites. And you're like, okay, I hear you. All right, rest. God, I'm on that team. Like, let's, let's do it. And then verse 14 takes like this really hard right turn. Because it begins, uh, observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Then <laughs> takes this wild right turn and says, anybody who desecrates the Sabbath should be put to death. And you're like, whoa. Like, hold seems a bit much, right? Like, that, that came out of nowhere, right? Well, why? Why is, why is not observing the Sabbath such a big deal to God in the Old Testament? Because the Sabbath was not about the Israelites. The Sabbath was for them. But it was ultimately, it was about God. You see, the Sabbath is about worship. It's not about going to worship, but it is about worshiping. Jen Wilkins, she says it this way. She said, Sabbath rest is about ceasing of the labor Ceasing of labor for the purpose of actively devoting ourselves to the joyful task of worship, which is our true calling. She says, rest is a way we worship because it's a reminder that we are not in control and that we are not the one on whom all things rest. We are not the most important one. God is. I see our rest is about worship. And our rest is worship that enables our work to be worship as well. And ultimately what's important for us to see is that is that it's not the Bible's as New Testament followers of Jesus, the Bible's not calling us to dedicate a single 24-hour day to taking off work and to resting. What's important that we see is that ultimately is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That's why the command to keep the Sabbath, you don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. Why? Because the Sabbath was about a foreshadowing of the rest that we would ultimately find in the person and the work of Jesus. That's why Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That's why Sabbath rest is not confined to a single day. It is an ever-present reality that the gospel empowers us to live in light of. You see, Jesus gives us a rest for our souls that enables our physical rest and our physical work to be what it's supposed to be, to be worshiped unto him, to be worshiped for him. And so when we rest too much or when we cannot rest at all, what it reveals is not that we have a problem with our jobs. What it reveals is that we have a problem with worship. You see, it reveals that we are looking to someone or something else to give us our identity and our purpose or our security or our fulfillment or our approval or our affirmations. We're looking to someone else or something else to give us and only God can give us those things. You just need... It's just so important that you hear this. That's not just a mistake. The Bible talks about that as rebellion. It's not just a mistake. That is rebellion. What we're saying is, God, I reject who you have made me to be. I'll manufacture my own identity. I'll decide who I am. I will decide who I want to be. The, the, the stupidest thing about all of that is that that, is, that, is like, that crushes us. It doesn't actually give the life that we are looking for. It just like is a burden that we'll never, ever be able to actually bear. And the good news is that the gospel sets us free. The gospel frees us from the work under the work. And when we receive our identity and our purpose as God's image-bearing representatives and let our work flow out of that, what will happen is that you can have good days and you can have bad days at work and your identity is fine. 
You can have great success or you can have great failure and your purpose doesn't change. You can get promoted or you can get laid off and you can still be secure in who God has made you to be. You see, that kind of work is life-changing. That frees you. That frees you to honor God and to reflect his image and his character no matter what you are doing. Does that mean that you should just like take any job, it doesn't matter, and you should never care about a job being a good fit for you? No. Like that, do you want? You don't want to hate your life, right? But what it means is that your job is not your ultimate satisfaction. No matter how good the job is that you have, no matter how bad the one is that you currently have and how good the one is that you think you want, it will never give you what you're looking for. No job will ever satisfy you. No job will ever fulfill you. No work will ever give you meaning and purpose the way you want it to be. Because it was never designed to. Your meaning and your purpose and your identity is wrapped up in your identity as an image bearer of God. And when you receive that and when you live in light of that, that changes everything. See, the gospel frees us from our work being a curse. It frees us from our work being a little G God that we worship because the gospel, it, it roots us in our identity as God's valued and commissioned image bearers. And the gospel empowers us to live out that identity with the strength of the Holy Spirit instead of our own strength. You see, our world says that you are, what, who you are is about what you do, but the gospel says, no, what you do, it flows out of who God has made you to be. And so if you are in Christ, you are not just an image bearer of God, you are a loved and cherished and enjoyed and pleased with image bearer of God. Do you see how freeing that is? Do you see how that like lets you just like enjoy Jesus and enjoy God and live your, and like just actually just work? Just let it be work. Not this thing that it has to be your meaning and your purpose and your identity. It gives meaning and purpose and worth to every job no matter what it is. It means that your identity is not changing if you lose your job or if you can no longer keep doing the job that you have. It means that the next job that you long for desperately, it will never be your savior. It might pay more, it might be better, but it will never give you the life that you're looking for. It's just a chance for you to live out the life that you already have. Man, that's so freeing. See, and in communion, what we are doing is we are remembering and we are celebrating that we belong Jesus, that because of the gospel and by faith in him, Jesus has finished the work that we were called to do so that we would, so that we can now actually live out our identity and our purpose as his image-bearing representative. See, the bread, as we take it, it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us. Jesus' body was perfect. He lived the life that we were called to live. He did it perfectly, and he did it on our behalf. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us. He paid the price for all the ways that we have marred the image of God and have looked for our identity and our meaning and our purpose outside of who he is and who he has made us to be. And what we are doing when we take communion every week is we are proclaiming the gospel. We are saying, this is the truth. This is what matters. This is what defines who we are. This is what shapes our identity. This is what shapes our life. This is what shapes everything about who we are and how we live. See, communion, it's important you see this. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with God. Communion is a chance for us to remember. It's a remembering. It's a celebration of what is true in the gospel. And so this morning, if you have trusted Jesus and if you have believed the gospel and if you look to him to be the one who both gives you your identity and your purpose and empowers you to live it out, 
then during our time of worship at the end here, come take communion. Do it as a celebration. Remembering who God has made you to be as his commissioned and loved image-bearing representatives. There's a table on the back, on the left, and on the right, and you just go back during our time of worship whenever you see fit, and you dip the bread in the juice, and that's the, the way that you take communion here. And I would just encourage you, you don't need to be a member here, you, you just need to belong to Jesus. And so as you go, as you go back and take communion, I just would encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to give you eyes to see the work under your work. Ask him to give you eyes to see what you are looking for in your work that is causing it to be the burden that it is. This is in my notes, but maybe you don't see your work as a curse or you don't see it as a God, but your family sees it as a work or a curse. It might be evidence that something is wrong that you need to pray about, you need to evaluate you see, we need, we need God to give us eyes to see what is true. We need him to give us eyes to see when our work is something other than worship to him. When what's driving us is the work under our work, our, our longing for approval or fulfillment or satisfaction or, or, or whatever. For those of us who wrestle with thinking that our work is a curse that we just need to endure, I just want to encourage you, ask God to give you his view of work as a good gift as a privileged way that you get to honor him and bear his image and ask him that he would give you rest in Jesus so that your work can actually be worshipped. For those of us who, who wrestle with worshipping our work, with looking for it to be our identity and our purpose and our source of meaning and fulfillment in our life or, or even the avenue by which you get that stuff from someone else or through something else, ask God to give you eyes to see what you're really longing for and how it will never satisfy but more than that, ask him to give you rest in Christ so that your work can actually be worshipped unto him. For your good, for his glory, let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we just, God, we just confess that our view of work is so often not yours. God, that our view of work is so often different than, than what you have made it to be. And the reason that that is is because, because we don't see it like you see it, God. We see it as a curse that we just have to endure, that, that the ultimate paradise is about the absence of work. God, we see our work as the place where we find our meaning and our purpose or the avenue by which we find our meaning and our purpose or get it. God, and we just say like that, those are lies that we, those are lies we believe. And God, what we need is for you to speak the truth of the gospel into our hearts and into our lives so that what happens is that our work can be worshiped to you. That our work can be what you what you've made it to be as, a, as an avenue, as an opportunity by which we get to love and serve and, and get to reflect your image and your character to the world that is around us. So God, thank you that our work is a gift from you. God, help us to see it that way. Help us to live in light of that. Help us to turn in repentance from where we don't see it that way. God, by the power of your spirit and by the good news of the gospel, would you change us? I pray these things in your good name.